Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. First up on the show, we're going to be speaking with Karen Pender, Senior Lawyer, Human Rights Law Centre. The Human Rights Law Centre and Digital Rights Watch have written to health ministers calling for stronger privacy protections. We'll be speaking with him shortly. And then after that, we will speak with Cheryl Axelby, who is a Naranga woman, co-chair of Change the Record. And we'll be speaking with Cheryl about Australia's state and territory governments, which are being urged to follow the lead of the ACT after it today released its the other day, released its roadmap to raising the age. And we have done extensive coverage about this topic prior to today. In particular, we have spoken to Tamar Hopkins um, and, and also um, Tiffany Overall about um, police brutality and also raising the age of, of young people. But we'll speak about Aboriginal um, children with um, Cheryl later. So, but first up... We will speak with um, with Karen. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to community since 1976. The Ninth Koori Art Show is calling for entries. This is your chance to showcase your work. All works entered will be exhibited at the Koori Heritage Trust. To enter, you must be a Victorian-based Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artist aged 17 years and older. There is a total prize pool of $32,000. Go online to kooriheritagetrust.com.au to register. Entries close on the 1st of November. Koori Heritage Trust is a 3CR supporter. back with the Doing Time show. And before I actually introduce Karen, um, I'm just going to give a little bit of an overview. The Human Rights Law Centre and Digital, Digital Rights Watch, as I said, have written to federal, state and territory health ministers calling for stronger privacy protections in the technology being used to support home quarantine trials. Hello, Karen. Welcome to the program. Hi. How are you going? It's lovely to have you. It's uh, stage four lockdown in Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> Which ends on Thursday, but yeah, apart from that, I'm fine. 
And you? Yeah, no complaints, thanks. That's good. Now, Karen, I'm wondering, look, the, the media, the Human Rights Law Centre have put out an excellent media release. Would you be able to just give a little bit of background of what's been going on? And I believe there's been a, the, the call comes after the South Australian government last month announced the trial of a new quarantine smartphone app. Could you talk about that? Sure. So, uh, yeah, obviously at the moment, uh, hotel quarantine for the past 18 months has been used as a primary mechanism to um, prevent the spread of COVID, which obviously imposes really significant human rights concerns, um, but, but you know, quite appropriately, I guess, at, at an initial stage. But as we move into the next phase of the pandemic, it's really important that um, our, our responses move with it and we move to uh, approaches that are, uh, are more consistent with, it, with other human rights. And so we've seen a number of states trialling uh, home quarantine, um, starting with South Australia and now New South Wales and, and Victoria, although New South Wales has recently um, said it, it doesn't intend to move forward with that. Other states are. Um, and, and so that's you know, something to be welcomed and, and it's a good thing we're moving away from hotel quarantine. But one of the concerns that the Human Rights Law Centre and Digital Rights Watch have raised is that uh, these home quarantine trials and, and, and looking as if as we move forward to a more widespread rollout of home quarantine, they're going to be predicated on the use of an app um, that gathers personal data and requires sort of check-ins to ensure people are complying. Um, and and uh, so obviously that, that, that app will raise um, privacy concerns. It will gather really sensitive data. And particularly we're concerned about the use of facial recognition technology within that app. You know, this is a relatively recent technology that has a number of limitations. Um, and, and so we think the, the sort of the untested use of this technology by government in such a consequential manner raises a number of red flags. And so that's why we've written to all of the state, territory and federal health ministers addressing these concerns, but done so in a, in a constructive manner. You know, we're, not, we're not saying that home quarantine, not saying that, that apps can't necessarily be a really useful way of, um, of moving forward, uh, into sort of the next phase of the pandemic, but it has to be done in, in a careful way with appropriate safeguards to ensure that the privacy of everyday Australians is protected. So, okay, so you've talked about how um, the management of quarantine through this role of technology, it's a transition. It'd be a transition, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be, from hotel to home quarantine? Um, how could strong safeguards be adopted against the misuse of personal information? Yeah, so there's a few things that we've called for in, in our letter. Um, so to start with, uh, last year when the government rolled out the COVID app, the COVID Safe app, now obviously that app hasn't actually proven that useful to the, the broader um, effort to stop COVID. The good things about that approach was uh, it went through a lot of scrutiny around privacy and around data storage and retention and management. And we saw uh, legislation introduced to support the app that has safeguards and protections built into it, which, and, and that same level of thinking isn't going into this current rollout of home quarantine apps. So South Australia, as I mentioned, they've been at the forefront of this. They don't even have a dedicated standalone privacy law that would govern the use of some of this information. They're proposing that some of the data collected by these apps will be kept until the end of the pandemic. I and mean, we don't know when that could be. That could be, uh, you know, sadly could be several years away. 
And so the, the storage of such um, significant, you know, particularly biometric data, so people's, you know, their, their faces, um, their, 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 their location, uh, in an unsafe way raises concerns. We've seen other concerns about the use of QR code data and police trying to access QR code data for other non-COVID related purposes. And so similarly, we're concerned that police might try and access um, some of this data that's collected in home quarantine apps um, for other law enforcement purposes. You know, we, we have a strong feeling that uh, these uh, forms of sensitive information and data should only be retained and maintained uh, in a way that's necessary to, to support the use of home quarantine, uh, but, but no further. Um, and so, for, for example, uh, the, the assets we understand is currently being used, it, it sees the data transmitted from the phone to a, a centralised storage system, whereas a better approach would be for verification uh, you know, of someone's location and, and their identity sort of in the app itself in a way that doesn't involve that data being transmitted to government and stored in a central location. So, you know, there are workarounds, there are ways we can improve these uh, apps and their privacy protections, but at the moment in the, in the trials we're seeing, those protections are not there, unfortunately. I don't know. It sounds most concerning, though, Karen. I mean, politically, what, in your view, as, as a lawyer, what do you think will happen now? Uh, well, I, I mean, I hope that um, we'll see some changes. You know, these apps have only been used in a trial mode so far, so I think that's a, a positive thing, um, that, you know, clearly governments are engaging with this on the basis that they need to learn from, from the use. Uh, I think we'll probably see different approaches from different states and territories, uh, we'll see New South Wales have said they're not planning on using home quarantine and Victoria um, and, and uh, Queensland are intending to, to use that approach. But I think, you know, there's some issues that are relevant to, to the immediate circumstance, but then there's some broader issues. So the use of facial recognition technology, for example, that's not going away and it's incredibly important we get this right. So at the moment, we've got technology that um, has a proven bias uh, we see facial recognition technology doesn't work as effectively in relation to people of colour and in relation to women. And yet we're seeing the government roll out these technologies in, in contexts that require compliance. So, you, you know, it's not far-fetched to imagine a situation where a person of colour um, might be in home quarantine and use the app and it might not recognise them and they could have police come and knock on their door because the app says they're not there when actually they are. Now, that's an alarming scenario, but unfortunately it's a scenario that's all too possible given what we know about these technologies and their limitations. Um, so the, the Human Rights Commission, the Australian Human Rights Commission, the uh, United Nations High Commission for Human Rights have called for a, a, a ban on, on government use of these technologies until we have appropriate safeguards in place. Um, and so I think you know, we need those safeguards in place first. We've got to put the, the, the horse before the cart, whereas at the moment we're just rushing into the use of these technologies in a way that isn't supported. And I wonder whether this this actually this transition with to home quarantine, although it hasn't happened yet, has it? Uh, it hasn't, it's not it hasn't happened yet. It's yeah. only being trialled at the moment. It's in, only been trialled in uh, New South Wales uh, and in Victoria and in South Australia. Right, right. Thank you, Karen. Now, in terms of prisoners. Is that happening in prisons at all? 
this technology? Sorry? Is this technology happening in prisons at all? Are they using that there? Well, that's one of the concerns. There's a lack of transparency. So police are using this uh, technology more and more uh, in their investigations. We know that, but there's not a lot of transparency around it. Use in other parts of government, there's a real lack of clarity about what's happening. Um, there's a, an active resistance to be more clear about the use of this technology, which, given the shortcomings, is, is deeply alarming. Absolutely. Karen, I'm so glad that you were able to provide an overview about this. Um, I know that the Do and Time show has been particularly concerned about balancing out the health crisis in terms of, of privacy, and I'm hoping that... You know that Australians are, will be able to make meaningful choices. Well, they can't make meaningful choices at the moment, can they? About yeah, exactly. And that's why we that's why we said in our letter that given the lack of a, a meaningful choice and the lack of meaningful consent to the use of these technologies, it's not good enough to say, well, you know, it is what it is. Really, these technologies need to be improved. The safeguards around them need to be really carefully thought through. And at the moment, unfortunately, we just haven't seen that. Absolutely. And sorry, Karen, just I'd also like to make a comment here that it could easily be, if the trials work, of course, hypothetically, it, it could easily be transferred to um, Australians in the community, couldn't it? Yeah, exactly. And we might see more and more use of these technologies in other contexts. So that's why it's really important we get these things right. Absolutely. Well, hopefully the pandemic will end soon. We don't know. Things are very uncertain. Are there any final comments that you'd like to make, Karen, before we finish? I know. That's all. Thanks. Karen, thank you so much for coming onto the program. It's been lovely to have you. Thanks very much for having me on. Thanks a lot. Health Before Profits is a campaign to oppose the Liberal Party's reckless drive to reopen which threatens the health and safety of Australia's poor, working class and Indigenous communities. We demand an immediate return to a zero COVID elimination strategy before it's too late. Join us for online forums, activism and campaigns. To find out more, follow Health Before Profits Vic on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Health Before Profits is a 3CR supporter. Across Australia and around the world, we've seen reactionary right-wing mobilisations around anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown and anti-public health demands. In response to this, the campaign against racism and fascism have launched the campaign Pro-Vax, Pro-Union, Anti-Fascist to combat the far right and to fight for public health, safety and social solidarity. Go to www.calf.melbourne to join the fight for the safety of workers in the community and against the far right. A 3CR supporter. Palestinian scarves 
and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafiyas, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations. From the traditional black and white kafiya to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafiyas.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. There are 
and you're back with the Doing Time show. And just to make a really quick announcement here that there are more um, asylum seekers that have been um, diagnosed with COVID-19 and, and the, the Park Hotel is an absolute disaster at the moment. Just to, to let you know, I'm hoping to um, let listeners know that I'm hoping to interview Ian Rintel from the Refugee Action Collective next Monday about that. Um, because it, there just seems to be a lot of many, many problems in regards to the coronavirus spreading within detention centres. And now just to give a, a very quick introduction in regards to speaking with Cheryl Axelby, sorry, um, co-chair of Change the Record, she's a Narunga woman, and just to, to introduce that topic, Australia's state and territory governments are being urged to follow the lead of the ACT after it, it released a new report outlining its roadmap to raising the minimum age of criminal responsibility and keeping young children out of prison. The report shows that raising the minimum age of criminal responsibility is necessary, achievable and straightforward. Aboriginal health, legal and human rights organisations welcomed the highly anticipated report and called on other Australian governments to follow suit as a matter of urgency. The report outlines the findings of a review led by Emeritus Professor Marag MacArthur, Aboriginal Consulting Company, and also Dr Akino Suoshi from the Australian National University, which was commissioned by the ACT government to identify alternative models to meet the needs of 10 to 13-year-olds once the age is raised to 14. It brings together evidence from around Australia and around the world about what interventions, programs and services ensure that children and their families get the support they need. And I wanted to take this, that opportunity to read out a few bits and pieces from the media release put out by the Human Rights Law Centre in conjunction with Change the Record, just to so that we can set the scene. And um, Cheryl is, is a First Nations woman with lived experience and um, of, of, um, of being First Nations and talking about First Nations issues. So every state and territory government criminalises and imprisons our children at far higher rates than non-Indigenous children. We welcome this step from the ACT government to change these harmful laws and instead provide support and services to children and their families. It's approximately 4.23 and you are listening to the Do and Time show and presently um, we'll be speaking with Cheryl after a couple of announcements. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, on digital and online, 3CR Radical Radio. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcasts. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. A lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. 
You know, it's how you love your family. It's how you care about your cousins. And it's how you care about your people. That's what that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. And we're now going to be speaking with Cheryl from Change the Record. Hello, Cheryl. Welcome to the program. Hello, and thank you for um, having me on. It's really lovely to have you, Cheryl. Um, I'm wondering if you could just um, talk about what land you're from and also just introduce yourself and your title. No worries. I'm Cheryl Axelby, Narunga woman from South Australia. My people come from the York Peninsula in South Australia. And um, my role is co-chair of Change the Record, which I've held now probably for about five years. And what is Change the Record? Change the Record is a coalition um, of First um, Nations-led, and I think it's the only First Nations-led justice uh, body. Um, We do have around about 18, 19 different um, organisations that have joined our cause, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, such as Amnesty International, the Law Council of Australia, now we've got the um, Aboriginal, National Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Legal Services um, and, yeah, many more um, who all come together um, to continue to do two things. One is to look at how we can influence policy and influence positive change for our people, particularly for the mass over-incarceration rates of our people in this country, and also to reduce family violence. I'm so glad that you you talked about that because it is really important to have First Nations-led um, programs. There's not mm. enough of it around, is there, Cheryl? That's true, and and you know we are non-government body, we're non-government funded, um, and we pride ourselves on that to ensure that we maintain an independent voice um, for First Nations peoples in this country. What's the website for Change the Record in, pay, in case listeners want to have a look? Yeah, it's um, www changeofrecord.org.au Thank you so much. So the Do and Time show is a show not just for prisoners but also in terms of looking at women um, and also looking at First Nations people as well in terms of providing a voice for communities that are deprived of voice. Hmm. So it's good that, that, that you're on the show. Um, and I was interest, I've been reading with interest about the Human Rights Law Centre media release, and there's so many organisations that are involved in this, including Change the Record. Yep. The Australian prison system has been designed to oppress and harm First Nations children since colonisation. Can you talk about that and discuss um, about the, why there needs to be, like, why the age needs to be raised? Well, our mob have been... You know, incarcerated since the time of colonisation of this country. Um, you know, and you know the law of the land was set up to particularly keep us off our own country. Um, and you know, we'd be charged for criminal offences. You know, when we're trying to hunt and gather for food, in, you know, in early days, and you know, our mob would be imprisoned. Um, and all that, as far as you know, I'm concerned personally, you know, has always been a strategy to. Um, imprison our mob so that, you know, our land um, in this country could be overtaken. And we continue to be um, 
you know, and during that time, you know, up until now, we still have um, laws, policies and practices that are imposed upon us um, and not for, you know, not for the benefit of us, um, and particularly when we talk about imprisonment of our people. You know, we have one of the highest incarceration rates in the whole world um, of First Nations people, which is appalling when you think about um, how, you know, Australia sees itself as a lucky country. Well, many of us don't see ourselves as being lucky in our own country. And, of course, we're still not yet being recognised in our own country, um, as you know, many other First Nations countries have. And, you know, when we look at the impact of past practices, laws and policies, you know, moving us of our country, putting us on missions, then, you know, getting us to assimilate back in mainstream society... Um, and also, you know, the stolen children's generation has had a devastating impact on our generations. And, you know, we still are seeing, even today, the intergenerational impact um, of our mob being incarcerated and many who have gone through the child protection and youth justice systems um, who lead into, you know, um, and who are more than likely to be um, recidivists and returning back into the adult prison system. So it's this system um, that I strongly try and advocate to educate the rest of Australia that there are different ways that we could be dealing with a lot of the issues because a lot of our mob get locked up and held on long remands. Um, they're not you know, provided opportunity to bail because of the tough law on crime policy that's happening across this country. And, you know, many of our mob are being incarcerated and held on long remand and doing longer sentences and then we've actually got a prison sentence. So, and particularly our younger generation, you know, like, you know, I think it's our 10 to 13-year-olds make up around about 60% of kids held in custody, um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander kids on remand. And, you know, it's time for us to look at how we do things differently because, you know, people challenge the system. They say that the system is doing what it's always meant to do, which is imprison people. Um, but we don't actually have a rehabilitative context to our prison system, hence why... We've been strongly advocating for raising the age that there we could break that cycle of incarceration for our future generations. Because really, how is a ten-year-old child hmm. going to know the difference between right and wrong? Well, they don't, and the medical evidence um, provides. You know, there's a lot of medical um, uh, professionals who support the raising of the age um, because of the brain development of a child um, and the cognitive development of a child, you know, they don't understand the consequences of their actions. Um, you know, and it's interesting that, you know, when we look at kids in school, you know, I think you've got to be 10 or you're probably 10, 11 year old before you can get a pen licence. And yet we're still in this country um, imprisoning 10 year olds um, in a system that gives them up for the adult system in my personal view. And I've worked in the justice system ever since I was 17 years of age um, when I first started working at the Aboriginal Legal Service in South Australia. And I was just recently CEO for the last maybe 10 years. Um, and, you know, so I've, ha you know, I've, I've seen the um, Royal Commission, I've, you know, I've been around when that happened, the Royal Commission of Aboriginal Deaths in Custody and the recommendations. Um, and yet we're still yet to see each state and territory um, fully commit to implementing those. And, you know, we're still seeing a lot of our mob dying in custody. Tell me more about your work in that area. My work in the area is probably over 30 years and I've worked in, you know, youth justice, I've worked in child protection. Um, you know, I've got a broad understanding of the system and how it operates um, and I've also worked in NGOs like our community sector and, 
you know, I think that when we see those gaps um, in the system and how we see the system drive our people more and more into the system rather than it actually focusing on, you know, creating positive change in the lives of our people, particularly after all the uh, trauma and ongoing trauma that we carry as a result of past policies and practices and even current practices, um, you know, that's when I'm pretty much, you know, dedicate um, my voice to trying to make a change for, you know, our people across the nation. And, of course, the recommendations of the Royal, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, very few have been implemented and there's been very little change. Well, we've... You know, I was um, co-chair of the National Aboriginal Trial Stock under legal services as well for about probably five, five, six years. And, you know, in that role, we had continually highlighted the need for the implementation, the full implementation of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Um, the federal government, you know, um, under Minister Scullion had done a, like a review of the Royal Commission recommendations and tell us um, that they had been... Um, you know, very highly implemented, um, but we challenge that because, you know, if we look at some of the laws and policies and practices and look about, you know, how you know our people are diverted away from the justice system, those policies and practices are not in place. You know, we wouldn't have the representation of our people in custody and we wouldn't have the ongoing... I think we're in about over 470 Aboriginal deaths in custody since the Royal Commission, you know, which is very um, tragic... And we still don't see a lot of justice for our mob who, do, who die in custody. We don't see justice for families um, and we don't see anyone being charged. Yeah, and that's definitely connected, isn't it, with young people? Absolutely. You know, and we also have you know, very high suicide rates you know, of our younger generation in this country. And you know, all of these things are, in my view, connected with the ongoing trauma and the oppression that we as First Nations people also experience in our own country. It's really important to talk about that, isn't it? And you mentioned the missions, and mm. really history in, is in many ways repeating itself. It certainly is. And, you know, when we look at the Stolen Children generation, um, you know, and I call it, you know, um, like at the moment I think the incarceration rates of our people, um, you know, men and women... Um, and now to be our children, our children make up over fifty percent um, at any time on average of kids locked up. Um, I think it's around about over thirty, probably close to forty percent of our children um, who are removed are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children in this nation. Um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women um, imprisonment rates have escalated over the last ten to fifteen years, um, and they make up over thirty-three percent of. Um, Aboriginal you know, women in, in, in custody and same with our men. So what, you know, it is, what's telling us is that we are probably the most imprisoned people um, in this country. And it's not because of our offending rates and it's not because, you know, it's, it's the system that it has, you know, which was, goes right back to removing our children from community and culture and country um, and not putting the effort in to deal with the poverty um, and the intergenerational poverty um, that exists in a lot of our communities. And uh, we've seen a lot of funding being pulled out of our communities over the years by the federal government. And, you know, during the ATSIC era, um, whether you like ATSIC or not, it actually did provide great community development opportunities um, and, you know, first-led nations community um, programs at the, at the community level, which were, you know, fantastic. Oh, that's good. That's really fantastic. Absolutely. 
So, Cheryl, can we just quickly talk about the report um, which yeah. outlines the findings of, a, of the review? It was that in Canberra in, in regards to, yeah. you know, raising the age? Yeah, well, what's happened is over the last three years, um, so federally all the Attorney General, State and Territory um, and, and ACT had got together and they were going to look at raising the age um, because, you know, there's lots of calls and there's a lot of great support for it across Australia. Um, it's taken them three years now to get to a stage um, where some states and territories um, have determined, I think, to go alone because there's still been no outcome. So ACT in particular um, were one of the first um, territories to put their hand up um, and we actually welcome, um, you know, their courage um, to actually, you know, take, you know, they're leading the nation with a clear commitment to raise the age um, and now they've actually further done a review about how um, to get us there. So what the report sets out is a clear achievable roadmap to ensuring that no children under 14 years um, of age is arrested, criminalised or imprisoned in the ACT. And, you know, we see it as a roadmap to a safer and more supportive community for everyone, you know, and as I've said, our mob, you know, particularly our children and our, in ACT and around the country are pushed into the criminal legal system at far higher rates than non-Indigenous children. You know, the po policies and the over-policing. I mean, one of the things I haven't mentioned was, you know, the over-policing that actually does happen um, and the racial profiling of our, of our families and our children. So we welcome this report because it clearly outlines the importance of investing in health, housing, family services and supports, you know, at school to help children grow and thrive. Exactly. And, and how can children grow and thrive in a prison, in particularly when they're not on country? Well, absolutely. And, you know, and if you look at some of the rural remote communities, you know, many of the children are taken away um, to, you know, hundreds if not even, you know, thousands of kilometres away from community um, and don't have access to family. And if we've learned anything from the Northern Territory with Dondale, um, we saw that horrific treatment of our kids um, in care and custody over there. Um, you know, I'll never, ever forget the, the footage of the, the Four Corners story. Oh. Um, it, it's just so heartbreaking. Um, you know, that's the sort of treatment that our children um, are being subjected to. Then, you know, we've got to look at, and this is why we're calling for raising the age, because we believe that keeping kids out of prison gives them a broader opportunity, you know, and a, a great opportunity to be able to, you know, create positive change in their life and, and you know, become, you know, um, you know, who they want to be um, with the supports in place. But in order for that to happen, there's, there needs to be more consultation, doesn't there, with Aboriginal communities? And also, isn't, in, particularly in the Northern Territory and also in parts of far north Queensland mm. and also other parts of Australia, that isn't the, that a second, that isn't the second language, isn't English the second language of Aboriginal people? Yep, and, you know, we do have... You know, commute, rural and remote communities, you know, where language is, you know, you know, English is second or third, um, you know, language, you know, for our mob. So, you know, when we look at what could be done, and there's things already happening in our communities, but we've seen a lot of reforms happening where we have our Nunga courts and our Koori courts, Murray courts in each of the states and territories. But what we're talking about is that we want something done um, where the children are not coming into the system and that where there's a really good community development, um, therapeutic 
um, response um, that is funded because I'm not sure whether a lot of listeners know, um, but, you know, a lot of our kids don't get support prior to unless you go through the child protection system um, or you come to the attention of, of the youth justice system. Um, schools quite often um, expel our children um, and, you know, so they don't have the time to deal with a lot of the situations like that happens for a child, you know, in their early lives. But we, you know, challenge that and we say, well, you know, at the end of the day, um, when you look at the billion-dollar industry in the prison system um, and also in the justice system itself, if we could put that money back into community development and develop Aboriginal community-led initiatives like we've seen with Maranooka um, at Burke, um, and there's some other programs around the state, um, and there's one in South Australia, um, you know, like as in, um, you know, they call them justice reinvestment-type programs, then, you know, they demonstrate, um, you know, that they can work. Um, I mean, can communicate, take control. Um, they can identify and prioritise what other services, um, responses that are needed in the community because you know, the government throw a lot of money at NGO sector, um, but there's no real planning with localised communities as to what you know, our needs are and where best, you know, that money could be spent and how to design programs that meet our community mobs' needs. Absolutely. Uh, Cheryl, I hope you haven't minded that you've staying on a bit longer than 15 minutes, but I felt like it was really important to discuss these things. No, well, thank you. And, you know, we also just want to highlight that there is a growing um, support um, for raising the age. Um, we also welcome the recent decisions of the Queensland Labor Gar uh, Party and the West Australian Labor Party to change their policies to support raising the age. Um, and we've also seen that support um, from the Greens um, across the nation um, in Queensland and Victoria. Um, so, you know, I'd encourage the listeners to, you know, have a look at Change the Record on our page um, and, you know, um, sign up in the context of showing your support for Raising the Age because the more that we get this message out um, across Australia, um, you know, and we're starting to see some states and territories, you know, starting to look at and introducing this, but we need more of our voices being heard um, to say that this is the right thing to do and the right thing for our future generations. It is really important, isn't it? And, I mean, in all honesty, before we finish, I, I get quite tired of, um, you know, politicians and even some some right-wing community members saying, oh, yes, yeah. but, you know, Aboriginal people have to get over the past. Mm. It's, it, it's not... It shouldn't be about saying things like that. No. Well, you know, we've got, you know, the work that was done with you, Uluru Statement of the Heart, you know, which is calling, you know, for, you know, our voice um, to Parliament, um, which is something that I think that we need because, you know, we need more of our mob um, in Parliament um, so that we can actually be at the decision-making um, level to get policies and practices changed for our people of the future. Um, so, you know... It's time for the politicians to listen. Um, Australia is actually, you know, quite um, you know, on the international front. Um, there's a lot of support at the United Nations by many countries for Australia. I think it was over 30 countries um, earlier this year were calling for Australia to raise the age of um, criminal responsibility. Um, so, you know, on an international front, um, there's a lot more attention on Australia now. Um, so let's hope we start seeing that positive change happening in our own country. Cheryl, thank you so much for coming onto the program. It was great having you. Thank you. Let's talk Enjoy soon. your day. Thanks a lot. No. Thanks. Bye. Bye.
Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune into Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR.
you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter. People have just tuned in. You've tuned into the Doing Time Show, 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. Previous to that announcement and song, you also heard a song by um, Ruby Hunter called Let the Children Be. I'm just going to finish off um, by reading out a very short article. I was speaking before about the the Park Hotel in Melbourne um, and what happened there with the refugees and coronavirus. And it's entitled the Refugee Action Coalition Media Release, um, COVID Crisis in Park Hotel, Six in Isolation, Three Confirmed Cases. Last night, Sunday 17th October, following the confirmation of three positive COVID cases, all refugees in the Park Hotel were confined to their rooms. Last night, after waiting days since signs of COVID emerged among refugees in the Park Hotel last week, all refugees who were not already quarantined, around 40 people, were finally tested for COVID. Astonishingly, despite the obvious urgency of the situation, detainees were told it could take two days to get an answer from the test. In the meantime, three refugees who were taken to hospital on Sunday night have been returned to the hotel. While this morning, Monday 18th October, at least one more symptomatic person has been placed in isolation on Level 1 of the Park Hotel, making a total of six people in isolation as of 12.30pm, Monday 18th October. Other reports say another four are in isolation. Refugee advocates have accused the federal and state government authorities of negligence over their handling of the outbreak in the Park Hotel. Despite people presenting with COVID symptoms last week, isolation and testing was delayed until Friday. The government has failed to implement the most basic COVID protocols, said Ian Rintel, spokesperson for the Refugee Action Coalition. The government has created the conditions most likely to cause maximum infection among a very vulnerable group of people. More, more COVID cases in the Park Hotel are inevitable. The Park Hotel is a COVID incubator. Refugees are being housed on levels two and three, just one level above guys who are COVID positive. The hotel is circulating air-conditioned air. The windows in the hotel cannot be opened. Border force actually sealed them shut after refugees were moved in the hotel last December. Victoria may be opening up for Friday, but the refugees are still locked in a most dangerous situation. The confirmed COVID cases and those who are symptomatic should not be in the Park Hotel, said Rintel. The government has confined them to the Park Hotel for no reason. Now lives are being put at risk. 
the hotel should be finally evacuated and the refugees freed. Freed for the threat of COVID and freed from persecution. So that was um, a media release that is definitely very, very important in regards to what's happening with the coronavirus, what's happening with not just refugees and asylum seekers, but also prisoners as well. And the Do and Time show has covered extensive um, interviews in regards to lack of transparency and lack of accountability, not only in detention centres, but also in prisons. So we need communities, not prisons. It's approximately 4.54. I'm just about to say goodbye. I'm out of here soon. And although I'm doing the show from home, what am I talking about? I'm not even in the studio. But uh, anyway, stay safe, everybody, and take care of each other. And stay tuned every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Doing Time show. And we're going to be going out now with our theme song, Black Fella, White Fella, by the Rumpy Band. Thanks. Bye. I'm
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.